Go ahead and find Matthew 11 with me. Matthew chapter 11. Let's begin in the text. Matthew 11 and verse 1. Matthew 11 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. People who have tried to understand the the structure and organization of the book of Matthew have noticed a distinct break in the book in verse 1. The first ten chapters, for the first ten chapters, Jesus primarily has been instructing his disciples, his sort of inner, inner circle. But chapter 11 and verse 1 says that that focus of teaching the disciples has reached some sort of conclusion, and his his focus now turns toward the cities. And so there seems to be a transition in chapter 11 from the focus on small group, inner circle, to now large crowds outside. Jesus has begun going public in a big way in chapter 11. And we're told that as word of Jesus' public deeds and public teachings begin to reach the ears of John the Baptist, John inquires about Jesus. Now you should know this about John the Baptist as he sends word. The reason why he has to send messengers is because John the Baptist is currently in prison. He's in prison because of his faithfulness in preaching God's word to the powerful. He had the gall to tell Herod that he didn't have a right to be married to the woman he was married to. And so he's in prison for that and he's suffering. He's suffering for doing good. His life has taken a a bad turn. And he says to Jesus, through these messengers, I'm having trouble believing in you. I think what he's saying is something like this. Jesus, I had some idea of what things would be like when the Messiah came. I had some idea of what that would be like. And whatever that was, it's not this, the part where I'm sitting in prison. Are you really the one who is to come? Or should we wait for someone else? Notice what he says in verse 6. Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble or take offense at me. We'll, we'll talk more about that phrase in a minute in our last point. But what that means is that John has perhaps begun to take offense at Jesus. He has stumbled over Jesus or is in danger of doing so. Now, let me just begin by saying this. How up, did, how up to date does this sound? For someone to say, you know, it's hard for me to believe in Jesus because of all the evil in the world, because of all the suffering I'm experiencing. There's some things about Jesus I struggle with that that are somewhat offensive to me, that I'm stumbling over. You know, we modern people, we think we invented skepticism. We think that everyone born before us were all just gullible and believed everything. We don't give them enough credit, and sometimes I think we give ourselves a little too much credit. But I want us to think this morning about John's question. Are you the one who is to come? It's a very relevant question to ask that of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another. I want us to simply walk through this passage and to see how Jesus answers this question. 
let's, let's just begin by focusing on the question a little bit more as we think about John's condition. So, verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him. So, John is in prison, and the question he has his disciples bring to Jesus is a doubtful question, verse 3. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you really the Messiah I thought you were, and I told people you were? Now, let's think for a minute about the person who is expressing these doubts. John the Baptist is the man who, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, is the first man to recognize and proclaim Jesus as the Christ. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who heralded the arrival of Jesus in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He recognized Jesus' identity and mission before anyone else. And he knew all of that because God told him. He had received divine revelation. He was a prophet of God. And on that basis, he said these things. This is also the man about whom Jesus is about to say, later in Matthew 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says until the present time, there has never been a human being greater than John the Baptist. And so here is, according to Jesus, one of the greatest people who's ever lived, specially anointed by God with divine revelation to understand who Jesus is. And yet when he gets in trouble, when he's in prison, when he's facing execution, when everything has gone wrong for him, when he's in chains, when he experiences darkness, he begins to doubt. Are you the one? So what are we learning from this? Well, first, I think it means this. Anyone can doubt. If John the Baptist can have doubts, anybody can have doubts about God, about Jesus. I also think it means it's not necessarily a sign of moral or or spiritual defect to wrestle with doubts. It's not necessarily a sign of moral deficiency, of spiritual deficiency, deficiency to wrestle with doubts. It's especially not according to the Bible when you're suffering and struggling with terrible troubles that have come into your life and you're wrestling with the big questions of life and life is hard. John the Baptist is just the latest in a very long line of people in the Bible who fall into terrible suffering and difficulty and they say so to God. Open up your Bible to the book of Job or Jeremiah or Habakkuk or the psalmist, and you will find godly people wrestling with the big questions about what the meaning of it is and and how my hard life fits into this great grand plan of a good God. And you know what doesn't happen here? Jesus doesn't look at John the Baptist doubting and say, how dare you doubt me? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, after all the divine revelation I've given you, after everything you've seen, how dare you? He doesn't do that. And if you look at all these frank cries of doubt in the Bible, you actually see that that when the doubts are expressed in good faith and people are really wrestling and trying to understand and believe, God is actually pretty understanding. Derek Kidner is a uh, a commentator on the Psalms, and he looks at some of the places in the Psalms where people are crying out in this way, lamenting, expressing these these doubts and questions to God. Just to give you a sample of the sorts of... uh, ways this this expresses itself. Psalm 39 ends this way. The psalmist says, Look away from me, God, so I can get a little bit of comfort before I die. Look away from me so I can get a little bit of comfort before I die. Because every time you seem to focus your attention on me, God, things go wrong. So just leave me alone. Psalm 88 says, even more starkly, 
Darkness is my only friend. In other words, not you, God. Darkness is my only friend. That's how those psalms end. And so this is what Kidner says of these psalms. He says, The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. So there are Christians and there are churches who who, who respond to any, any modicum of questioning or doubt by basically saying, don't say that. How dare you? That's not allowed. You can't say that. You only have to believe and you can only ever have great, happy, fun-filled days with Jesus. Look at Jesus' attitude, though. On the one hand, he doesn't say, how dare you, John the Baptist. We also have to say, on the other hand, he doesn't simply acquiesce to the doubt. He doesn't say, let's all just revel in our doubting. He doesn't let John the Baptist go. He challenges him. He pushes back, as we'll see. But what I want to say on John's question is this. We want to be a church that can say, we understand how hard it is to believe at times. We are patient and gentle with doubters. I know many thoughtful and mature believers who had periods of time of doubt and struggle in their faith. And sometimes they even talk about how coming through it was the thing that formed a stronger faith than them, than they had before the doubting. The first lesson of the story is that anybody can doubt and that it's not necessarily a sign of moral or spiritual defect. That's what we learned from John's condition. Let's begin to think about how Jesus answers it, as we think about Jesus' credentials. So as we move toward Jesus' answer, let's read verse 3 again, keep going a little further, and think about another aspect of John the Baptist's question. This is verse 3. <coughs> Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So notice John's question. He doesn't say the words, are you the Messiah? He actually asks this question, are you the one? And actually he has called Jesus a similar thing before. He has called Jesus the one before. Back in Matthew 3, he called Jesus the one who is mightier than I, or the one who is stronger than I. There he says, the one who is strong is coming. Now, why would he call Jesus the strong one, the mighty one? Well, I think part of the answer is because most folks, including perhaps John the Baptist, understood that the Jewish Messiah would be a strong man, a man who came in strength. His job, according to the Old Testament, in part at least, would be to bring judgment on evil, to bring an end to oppression and injustice. And of course, most people thought the only way to do that is to be strong. Therefore, if Jesus is the Messiah, he would at least be surrounding himself with strong people. He would be exercising his strength. He would be leading some kind of a popular, political, maybe even military uprising. How else are you supposed to bring judgment on evil? You have to be strong. That was the expectation of the Messiah, perhaps even the expectation John the Baptist shared. And yet it's starting to become clear to John the Baptist, Jesus isn't anything like that. First of all, Jesus hasn't wielded any swords. He hasn't killed any Romans. 
he is surrounded by and only seems to spend time around weak, insignificant people. And I think John is asking, Jesus, I was your herald. I heralded the arrival of the Messiah. I thought you were him. And now all of a sudden, I am in prison and I am in weakness. If you're the Messiah and I'm the herald of the Messiah, why am I about to die? If you're the Messiah, you and the people around you should be strong. But look at us, we're not. Everything is going wrong. It seems like this movement is coming to an end. We're being defeated. We're in weakness. And how could the Messiah and those surrounded by him be in weakness? And Jesus' answer is quite remarkable for several reasons. First of all, the answer he gives in verses 4 and 5 is an utterly biblical answer. He says to the messengers, go back and tell John what you've seen. I'm healing the blind, I'm cleansing the leprous, I'm raising the dead, I'm healing the lamb, I'm preaching the good news to the poor. He's referencing a couple of texts here. The first is Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, God's arrival to deliver his people is signaled by these signs. Listen to Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the layman shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah said, when God shows up to deliver his people, this is what it looks like. And what Jesus is doing, what he tells the messengers is, he basically points to that passage and then he points to his own work, and then he says, go tell John to connect the dots. What did God say it would look like when he came to deliver his people? And now look what's happening. There's also a reference here to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 says, when the Messiah comes, it looks like this. The Lord anointed me. This is what the Messiah will say. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's also, by the way, easy to, to hear echoes of the Beatitudes here. Blessings are being pronounced by the Messiah on the poor, on the weeping, on the imprisoned, on the persecuted. This is what Jesus has come to do to fulfill Isaiah 61. And so Jesus is really drawing John the Baptist's mind back to the Bible. And he's saying, you know what? The Messiah will be spending time with the weak. He will go to the blind. He will go to the lame. He will go to the poor. That's what the prophet said he would do. But not only that, I think Jesus is doing something else here in his answer. I think he is evoking in John the Baptist's mind the pattern of Old Testament people who brought deliverance. We might call them small-scale saviors, small-scale messiahs. What do I mean? Let's take a couple of prophets. Let's take Elijah and Elisha. These were the, the great prophets of power in the Old Testament. These were prophets who raised the dead and healed the sick and cleansed the lepers and cared for the poor and did all of this. But keep thinking about them. Yes, they exercised this power on behalf of all these people, but keep thinking about it. Did Elijah raise some popular uprising? Did Elijah become king and rule the world? Elijah was always a fugitive on the bad side of those in power. He was always being rejected. He was running for his life. That's the way it goes for God's deliverers in the Old Testament. Yes, they come and exercise their power on behalf of the weak, but they don't ride their popularity up to political power. Think of Joseph. Joseph delivered his family. But first, he was buried in slavery and prison for years before God raised him up. 
God's faithful deliverers have spent a lot of time in prison. Think of David. David, of course, did rise up to great power, but what happened before? He was buried in the wilderness. He was running from Saul for his life until God raised him up. He suffered before he was vindicated. If you think about it, the messianic salvation in the Bible has always predicted, first of all, that it flowed to the weak and not the strong. And then the small-scale saviors who brought about those deliverances were always rejected before they were vindicated. And so what Jesus is getting at is that the fact that he and his followers and even his herald John the Baptist are in weakness, are persecuted, and may be killed, doesn't disprove that Jesus is the one. If anything, it's just further proof that he is the one. He's conforming to the pattern that God's deliverers always conform to. God's saviors are usually rejected before they're vindicated. They're usually buried before they're raised up. And so it's very interesting. On the one hand, Jesus does tout his credentials by referencing his power. He is the strong one. That is illustrated in these signs. His powerful signs signify he really is from God. John was not wrong when he said Jesus is the strong one, the mightier one than I. And yet at the same time, Jesus wants John and us to see that his strength is not employed in the way that everyone wants it to be or expects it to be. He doesn't come to give his strength to the strong. He doesn't come to raise up an army. He doesn't come to kill a single Roman. He comes on behalf of the poor in spirit. He comes to suffer and die, not conquer and kill. He will have to be buried in victory before he is raised in victory, buried in defeat before he's raised in victory. And what that might mean among Jesus' followers, including John the Baptist, is that they too might have to be buried before they're raised. They too might have to suffer before they're vindicated. Faithfulness might mean suffering on the near side of victory. Which brings us to verse 6. As we think about Jesus' challenge, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in this final phrase in verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me or is not offended by me. The Greek word he uses here is the word scandalizo. So most literally we could put it this way. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. It's a word that means to be so offended that you don't believe. To see something that is so wrong that it just totally turns you away from the thing. To be scandalized by it. And if you think about it, it sort of reads like an extra beatitude, doesn't it? It begins like a beatitude. Blessed is. So here is the, one, here is the beatitude. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's the challenge Jesus, Jesus issues. So I want to think about two things about what Jesus says in verse 6. The first thing Jesus says in verse 6 is, is that he is offensive. Jesus is, in some sense, offensive. You don't warn somebody not to be offended unless what you're about to say could be offensive. If you say, listen, I'm going to tell you something and don't be offended, that means I'm about to tell you something offensive, right? So when Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me, he's saying, I can be offensive. And if you actually read the Gospels, I mean, don't just cherry pick the the nice parts that we like. If you actually read the Gospels from beginning to end, you'll understand why Jesus says this. The popular conception of Jesus as a good moral teacher, a nice guy who taught people to be nice, uh, is just plain wrong. Jesus is always talking about himself. He says he's going to come judge the world. 
He says he is equal to God the Father. He says all sins are against him and that only he can forgive those sins. He says he lived before Abraham, that he is eternal. He says you must hate your father and mother if you're going to follow him. Which means he demands loyalty and love so intense that all other loyalties look like hatred by comparison. This is why C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And those are the only three options you get. Because when people met Jesus, no one in the Bible ever said, what a nice teacher of love. What a nice teacher on, on some moral, moral virtues. People either hated Jesus or they ran away frightened of him or they fell down and worshipped him. But they always responded in an extreme way. And in verse 6, Jesus acknowledges his capacity to offend. So what's so offensive here? Why is it offensive to claim to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe? Well, it's offensive because of what it implies about us. If Jesus is the Lord of the universe, that means you are not competent to run your own life. That means you're not smart enough to make your own decisions. You have to listen to him because he knows better than you. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, that means you're lost and you can't save yourself. It means you're a hopeless sinner. And unless he atones for your guilt, you are damned forever. Jesus' claims imply you're a sinner. You need salvation. You don't have a handle on your life already. You need a master and you need a Lord. And that is offensive to every culture and to every time period. And by the way, to say that Jesus was just a wonderful teacher of, of sentimental love and niceness makes absolute nonsense of history. Why in the world was Jesus executed if he was, just a, if he was just a wonderful teacher of love? Why in the world was he killed? To put it another way, why would you put Mr. Rogers to death? All right, I'm not trying to be mean to Mr. Rogers. I have fond memories of watching his show. But one of the things that, that he always said was this. I like you just the way you are. Why would anyone ever kill you for saying that? And you should know there are a lot of Christian books today doing everything they can to turn Jesus into Mr. Rogers, to make Jesus say to us, I like you just the way you are. No, the gospel of Jesus is something much more offensive than that. But if you can humble yourself enough to accept that offense, it becomes the most wonderful thing in the world. Because the gospel says, you are a sinner, and you need salvation, and you don't have a handle on your life already, and you need a master and a Lord. But Jesus has made salvation and grace available to anyone who is ready to confess all of that about themselves. Own your poverty. Be poor in spirit. Own your weakness. Own your blindness. Find yourself in Isaiah 35, the blind and the weak and the leprous, own your leprosy. Do that. And my grace can come into your life and heal you and change you. And so Jesus is saying in verse 6, I am offensive. And what I say about you and about myself is offensive in a sense. But, but this is also what's in verse 6. The second thing I want to say about verse 6 is this. Blessedness is found in not taking offense. Jesus can be offensive, but blessedness is found in not taking offense. If you don't feel the offensiveness of Jesus, if you don't see how offensive he is to human pride, you have not come to grips with who he really is yet. 
you've turned Jesus, Jesus into Mr. Rogers. Because the real Jesus is incredibly offensive, and he says things that imply that we have, unless we're completely sold out for him, we're not fit for his kingdom. Unless we lay it all down to him, unless we rest in him alone, we are not fit to be his disciple. But by the same token, if you don't see the beauty of what he did for you, then you haven't come to grips with him either. It's offensive to admit you're spiritually blind and leprous and poor and dead. But it's wonderful to see that he became all of those horrible things for us, to redeem us. Now, if you have a small view of your sin, if you think you're not so bad, you may even believe Jesus died for you, but it won't electrify you and it won't change you. But if you have a big view of your sin, his love and mercy become electrifying and moving. And you say to yourself, I cannot believe he did that for me, little old me, a wretch like me. That's what fills you with blessedness. You see his offensiveness. You see what he says about how poor and corrupt you are. But then you overcome that offensiveness with what he did for you on the cross. Do that and you will be blessed. And so again, verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is offensive, but blessing is found in not taking offense, but only seeing the love and care. Our eternity is basically determined by our answer to John's question. Are you the one who is to come? And so the question this morning is, who do you think he is? What's Jesus here to accomplish? Is he here to accomplish your plans or to accomplish his plans? Is he here to simply affirm you as you are? I like you just the way you are. Or is he here to call you to repent of your sins? Is he here to call you to confess him as Lord? Is he here to call you to be submerged in water for the forgiveness of your sins and to be raised to live a life of following him, living as if he is the Lord and King he in fact is? And so the question this morning is, what do you think? Is he the one or should we look for another? If you need to answer that question, come forward now as we stand and sing to encourage you. Would be how dark, how free.